Good morning. Well, as they go marching off to junior church, what I would like for you to do, if you would, please stand up and find somebody and shake their hand and welcome them to church. We have not done this in, in ever. So for this, you're going to have to participate. You're going to have to get up and stand up and, you know, go see, you know, say hello there. Good to see you. It's all right, you're all in the family here. I'm glad you're all here to worship. Okay, that's right, that's right, stalling. <laughs> all right, guys, let's all have a, that's the thing about that, when you, when you, when you start having everybody shake hands and you can't ever rein them back in. I mean, we'd be up here for half an hour doing that, and that's great. Now, here's the catch, though, I, I, uh, <laughs> that's all right, we're, no, no, I'm too, I'm too gruesome. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now, now here's the catch on that. Um, I, I noticed uh, our prayer time. There are a lot of, lot of requests and concerns out there. Everybody that you shook hands with this week, you have to pray for those people. All right, so think about who who did you <laughs> think about who you uh got up and met and shook hands with and you were uh, uh a friend to. You know, I want you to to lift them up this this week. It's obvious there are a lot of concerns and prayers. Uh, uh Julie mentioned uh, maybe a possible foster placement, uh some serious uh health issues, different things going on. There's just a lot happening. And, uh, yes. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Uh, pray I don't overspend and tick off my wife and create prop. No, never mind. I don't want to. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I do think you know praying is uh, is very important. We remember to pray for one another. First, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, Philippians four, verse six says, "Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus." How many of you would like peace in your heart? <laughs> A little bit of peace. <laughs> Well, there you go. So I take some time this week and pray for those people that you you were so kindly welcomed this morning. I was thinking back uh, 
I've always been somebody who, uh, I want to try all kinds of things. I want to be involved in all kinds of things. And, and that's a blessing and a curse. It's neat to be very curious, to want to try things. But it's also, you can appear very wishy-washy. What's he on to this week? You know, wow, this week, man, he's, he's reading through the Bible. What are you doing this week? Oh, he's binge-watching Grey's Anatomy. What are you doing this week? I'm, it's always something else, just one of, the big, one of the big ideas that I got into being a history teacher and being in, interested in history was Civil War reenacting. So I went out and borrowed a bunch of uh, very authentic looking equipment and I got involved with these guys and these total strangers. And uh, we packed up the car and took off to Michigan for a Civil War reenactment. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. You know, so, so we go up there and it was basically a whole weekend of dress up for for men, and you know, we dressed up in our Civil War gear, and we, you know, they did all this stuff, and and I always enjoyed the drill part of it. I guess because I was a football coach, I liked to practice the drill, the, the the whole thing. And we had this one fella that who was new as well. He could never get anything right. So we'd be marching, and it's not that hard, really. If you've been in a marching band, you could do Civil War reenacting, and or if, if you can even you know follow somebody in front of you, you, you could do this. The worst part was when it became time to fire a volley, fire a, a, a salute, or uh, when you're in rank in those days, it wasn't everybody running around shooting at, you know at their discretion. I mean the whole line, the whole group would have to stand forward and fire one shot, you know, back up. The guy in the next line, you know, they'd step in. Well, this guy could never fire in sequence with anybody else. And we did a couple parades, memorial services, where we'd get up there and, ready, aim, fire, pew, pew. You'd hear one shot go off, and you'd be like, man, I guess. Blew it again. And every time we would do that, ready, aim, fire, pew. And the, the idea is you want it all to happen at the same time. So he, uh, he worked on that. And uh, the last one I was involved in, it was ready, aim, fire, and it was like, oh, it was horrible. Timing's everything. You, you want to do things on time with, with everybody else in, in a certain way. In today's uh, reading, I'm going to be looking at a story out of 1 Samuel. I've preached on this before a little bit. And this, this message kind of piggybacks on what we looked at last week, the idea of standing firm. You know, things are, uh, you know, the rapid changes within society. There's a lot of pressure to conform to the things of the world. We need to stand firm on your principles, on your uh, Christian teachings, on the things of God um, we need to stand firm. And in 1 Samuel chapter 13, uh, a great story here. Now, I talked about binge-watching uh, TV. I used to binge-watch. Uh, one of my things I used to do was, there used to be a TV show called 24. This, this episode takes place between 11 a.m. and 12 p.m. You know, and so... And I decided I was going to watch all 24 episodes in sequence, 
all at once. And when you do that, you start to realize, man, this, there are so many problems with the time jumps, and there's no way that guy got clear across town in five minutes. And you know. So this week, I decided I was going to binge read the Bible. I'm going to sit down. One of the things, being a teacher, I, I ended up this week, I had some time. I'm just going to plow through it. Not really to study it, just to read it. And I sat down and made it all the way up to 1 Kings the first day. And I got wore out. I didn't pick it up yesterday. and Maybe tomorrow we'll get back to it. But one of the things I was reminded of is you kind of read through it like that is just how screwed up everybody is in the Bible. Even some, you know, a man of God, a woman of God, they say, man, they all had problems. and Did things that were just like, oh my goodness, I can't believe some of the things. I'd forgotten how in that culture... Uh, their attitudes towards women were very different than today. Many of the women were treated very poorly. Um, and uh, one of my favorite stories is the story of uh, the first king of Israel, a guy by the name of Saul. And Saul was 30 years old when he began his reign, and he ended up, uh, he reigned over Israel for 42 years. So this is a guy who... He had reigned for a long time. God had never really intended you know, to have this human king over his people, but the people wanted a king. God said, all right, you, you got it. And what I want to do is, uh, you think about this. Have you ever taken matters into your own hands and acted hastily? I'm tired of waiting. I'm just going to do it myself. You, you, you just act hastily. Maybe you haven't thought it through all the way. Maybe you just uh, got tired of waiting, so you went to take care of it yourself. Sometimes when we're in a rush, we'll panic. We might not make the wisest decisions. And sometimes when we, you know, whenever we feel the need to act in haste, the best thing to do should be to seek the Lord and, and maybe wait on it. There are many uh, instances in the Bible where that's apparent because Getting ahead of the Lord's a terrible mistake and can have unpleasant consequences. And in the case of Saul in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13, um, let's see. Where am I at? Basically, uh, where do I want to start? Okay, let's start with verse 6, and I'll just read from there. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. They're out against the, the Philistines, and there's, there's a battle about to take place. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead, but as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people following him trembling. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, who was a great prophet. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Samuel said, look, you're going to go to this place, and you're going to wait seven days. Wait for me. And then when I come, I'll take care of this, this thing we're going to do, and, but don't do anything until I get there. So they waited seven days. Verse 9, so Saul said, Okay, bring to me the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offerings. He shouldn't have done that. That's the job of the, 
the, the priestly order, the, the Levites, not Saul. Okay, that would be like uh, the car, we have the car show out here, and Larry's car's broken down. And uh, Larry says, don't do anything, I'll be there. Don't touch it. Oh, I got this, so I'm out there banging on it, trying to you know, mess it all up. Understandably, Larry would show up and go, what are you doing? This is my car, I told you not to mess with it. Well, I thought I'd get in there. He shouldn't have done that. As soon as he, uh, verse 10, as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, of course, and Saul went out to meet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, well, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and you didn't come within the appointed days and you know, here come the Philistines and therefore I said, uh, now the Philistines will come against me at Gilgal and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Basically, he went and did it himself. Pretty foolish thing. He should have waited like he was told. Verse 13, Samuel said, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord will have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now the kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Wow, what a colossal screw-up. Samuel saying, if you'd have just done what we told you to do, what God wanted you to do, Things would be fine. But no, you had to run in there and do it yourself, and as a consequence, it's going to cost you your, your, your kingship. God's already picked somebody else out. That, of course, would be David. Caving under that pressure, Saul offered up the burnt offerings himself to invoke the Lord's favor. But in his fear and impatience, Saul sins by directly disobeying God's command. Sin is never the solution to a problem. We can't disobey God and hope that good's going to come out of it. Uh, we might rationalize it out in our own minds, but the truth is, if it's against God, it's not going to prosper. Now, I like the, Saul's response to Samuel here, uh, back in verse 11. You read back through that, and, and Saul replies to Samuel with these revealing words. When I saw, or when I thought, well, and, and then so I felt, you know, I would do this. And apparently, King Saul is walking by sight and not by faith. He's letting his feelings of fear his impatience, drive his decisions, and not listening to God. Bottom line, Saul was not trusting God. Yeah, 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 I know God, you told me to do this, but look, you know, I had to get this done. <laughs> you didn't trust me. Why don't you trust me? One of my favorite movies, and this is definitely not a Christian movie, I'll have to admit, but if you like baseball, it's one you don't want to miss. It's a movie called Bull Durham. How many of you have seen Bull Durham? That's about everybody. So, Well, there's a character in there, this fantastic pitcher. And he thinks he's all that. He's going to, man, nobody can touch my stuff, and I'm just going to pitch. 
And the catcher, played by Kevin Costner, he, he nicknames him Meat. Hey, Meat. As in Meathead. <laughs> you, you think too much. Just get up there and throw. That's all you got to do. And there's this great scene where, you know, he's like, I'm going to throw him the curveball. I want to give him the heat. Catcher's down there giving him signs, and he goes, he just shook me off. Curveball! He's like, uh, give him the heat. Okay, here it comes. By the way, fastball right down the middle. Let's see if he can hit that heat. So he throws the ball, kapow, and knocks the ball out of the stadium. And he goes like, it's almost like he knew it was coming. He's like, he did. I told him it was going to be a fastball, so he, so he blasted it out of here. You need to quit thinking. Just do what you're told. Do what, do it. And God's like, for us, he's like the catcher calling signs. And we're always like, uh-uh. And God flashes the sign again, and we're like, uh-uh, I ain't doing that. I'm going to bring him the heat. And what happens? Boom. You know, disaster. And I love the, from that point on, the rest of the movie, every time the guy would think about calling his own sign, he'd get up there and go, I don't want to bring the heat. And he'd go, no, no, don't think. Just pitch. <laughs> Don't think. Just pitch. And uh, I've learned over the years, Neola and I, when we drive, it's always hilarious when we drive together because Neola will always tell me. It's almost like play-by-play -play in the car, okay? Here comes a car. Here he comes. Uh, oh, we dropped down to 35. Uh, oh, oh there, there's, there's, this, there's where we're turning up there. Oh, watch that deer over there. Look, look, up, up, and so I'm just driving. And when I was younger, I used to just throw a fit over that. I know there's a deer. Leave me alone. I can see the deer. I know we're supposed to turn right up there. Oh, we, we talked about it. Oh, I know which way. You... I have learned over the years, I'm, I'm meat. <laughs> no, don't argue. Just do what she told me. Because every time... It's the right thing to do. If I would just shut up, do what I'm told, there's no problem. Things work out the best. It's taken 30 years, dear, but I think you made it there, so great job. A lot of you ladies are laughing. Your, your, your men do the same thing? You haven't got them trained yet? Maybe I'm not. So Saul replies, you know, in this situation, I'm sorry, Samuel, I just, you know, this is what I thought I should do in this situation. And Samuel cuts straight to the chase. You've done a foolish thing. You should have done what the Lord God had told you to do. The directions were simple. You know what to do. You want a blessing, we'll give you a blessing. But there are people set aside, uh, there are priests, there is the whole tribe of, of you know, the, the Levites, their job is to do that. And, and you're the king. That's not your job. Let God decide how the best way to do things, how to do that. Frankly, Saul did what he was, thought was right in his own eyes, not what God had commanded. And I can't tell you how many times I've acted like Saul. I've seen things and I act in my, what was right in my eyes. It's not was not the best thing. Now, I've made some good decisions in the middle of things, and I've, you know, I'm not saying I'm a total incompetent, 
But I do know that oftentimes when I ignore advice and I try to do things in my power the way I want them, usually it ends up, I end up looking foolish. And our feelings can cause us to act very foolishly. Left unchecked, that can lead us to moral. It can lead us to spiritual decay. So many times as Christians, we base the truth of our lives over feelings. Feelings should not drive the train. Facts, reality, those things drive the train. The feelings come later. I can tell you how many kids uh, today, they expect to get uh, an award in a, in a sport, for example, I had a gal last year in track, and I love her to death, but she just assumed by showing up, she was supposed to get herself a, a ribbon. I was supposed to get an award. We got all these awards last year. We're not getting anything this year. I'm like, well, dear, two-thirds of your kids last year, they didn't come out for track this year. It's a totally different year. It's a totally different season. Uh, a lot of things have changed. Oh, man, she was just furious that she was not winning. And I'm like, the feeling of accomplishment comes later. You have to earn that ribbon first. You don't just get that. You have to earn that thing. Feelings cause us to act foolishly. God's Word reminds us that when we feel afraid, we should trust him. Psalm 56.3, and I know I don't have slides up there, and I've annoyed some people, but I'm an old school dude when it comes to that. 56.3, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere men do to me? What a wonderful Reminder from Psalms that when we're afraid, we should trust him, not take matters into our own hands and act foolishly. When we don't know what to do, we should wait, cease striving, seek him. He will wisely guide us when we come to him in faith. Uh, the book of James talks about that. One of the things that uh, I teach my teams, I teach my students, um, when faced with a, 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 an action, oftentimes it's best to press pause before you do something. Because when something happens, when an event happens, you have to decide what to do. And it's best that you stop, consider it, then act. So many times things happen, kids react to it, and it ultimately blows up in their face. Adults, we do the same thing. Press pause. The Bible talks about that. Press pause. Cease striving. Wait on the Lord. Seek Him. He will wisely guide you in what to do. Well, so much for Saul. Let's look at something out of the New Testament. Uh, turn to Matthew chapter uh, 8. And in Matthew, there's a couple of different stories You've heard of Jesus walking on the water. Well, there's a couple of different stories of Jesus in a boat out on the sea and some different things. Well, consider the story of Jesus in the boat. And in the first story, Jesus has been out healing people. 
So he's pretty wiped out. I imagine healing people's, uh, uh, that, that's uh, an intense people skills. Uh, whenever you work with other people, emotions get involved, and that just wears you out. And I think Jesus was probably pretty worn out. And in Matthew chapter 8, if we look at verse uh, 23. Now Jesus has been talking to people. He's been uh, debating with some people. Uh, he's been healing some people. And basically, he's, he's going to take his disciples and say, look, guys, we could spend a year here, but we got to get moving. we got to move on to the next place. You guys get in the boat. Here's the Sea of Galilee. And uh, you guys go ahead and set off to the next spot. I'll, I'll catch you over there. I'll meet you up. And they're probably thinking, how's he going to get over here? Okay, fine. So they get into the boat. Verse 23, when, uh, uh, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Uh, where am I at here? Maybe I'm in the wrong spot. Uh, oh, this is where he's, yeah, I got the wrong story. Anyways, he gets into the boat, his disciples follow him. Now he's worn out. What happens when he gets in the boat? Anybody remember this story? He, he falls asleep. He conks out. Like, uh, we uh, did some things down at the church camp, and we were heading home, and, and uh, you know, people in the van are like, <clears throat> and, you know, they're all wiped out. They're tired. So when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. You've got to understand where the Sea of Galilee is. The Sea of Galilee sits about 700 feet below sea level. You think uh, New Orleans is bad. You know, go to the Sea of Galilee. It's way down there. And there's a big mountain to the north called Mount Hermon. And it's very tall. And the winds, when they, they, they whip around that mountain and across the sea. And that causes these pop-up storms to just out of nowhere. So when Jesus and them, when he got into the boat, I mean, he probably understood, you know, this could get, be a bumpy ride here. And off they go, and there's a, uh, of course, a great storm. And the disciples are frightened. They're scared. What do we do? Verse 26, he said to them, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, Wow, what kind of a man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Kind of a dramatic sort of example. Now let's jump ahead to Matthew chapter 14. Some things happen. Um, Jesus is going around. John the Baptist is killed. Uh, people are crying about, you know, they want signs, they want this, they want that. Jesus is trying to teach them in parables. And we get to chapter 14. Uh, John the Baptist is beheaded. That grieves not only the disciples, but Jesus himself. Matthew 14, verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot 
from the cities. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Now Jesus, the man, is thinking, there we go again, I'm tired. I'm sad, My John has just been killed. Look at all the people, though. I'm going to serve. Verse 15, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and the hour is late, so send the crowds away and they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said they don't need anything or they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have five loaves and two fishes. Jesus says, bring them here. You know where this is going. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate besides the women and children. This was a big ministry. This was a big event. A lot bigger than our car show. I mean, that, think about all the effort that goes into that. I mean, try to feed 5,000 people. So at the end of the day, verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the people away. So you know, they've seen this scene before. Jesus is like, you guys go on to the next city. I will meet you there. And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was the evening... He was there alone. I love Jesus. I'm an introvert myself. I have to get away and be, be alone sometimes. That's how I recharge. See, if Jesus was an extrovert running through the crowds, man, he'd be fired up, ready to go. But, you know, he often had to withdraw to pray. And he tells the disciples, guys, I just need to be alone for a little while. You guys get in the boat. Go on. I'll meet you over there. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. The disciples have been through this before. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. They said, look, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter has seen this before. He remembers back to earlier when they were in a boat in the Sea of Galilee and a great storm arose. And what did Jesus say? Knock it off. And it became calm. Peter's sitting here with Jesus saying, he's going to do it again, fellas. There's nothing to be afraid of. In fact, watch me. Lord, if you command, if you want, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand. He took hold of him, said to him, oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Peter's ready when Jesus comes to him on the sea. Peter probably remembered the last boat trip across the sea. He knew that Jesus would calm the water. What was there to be afraid of? But he became afraid and he failed. 
But Jesus was there to lift him up. How many times do we take actions in our life? We know that Jesus is there. We know that he's coming on the water. He asks us, look, just get out of the boat. Just trust me. Just do what I'm asking you to do. Just obey me. I love you. Come out here. And we get out of the boat, and we immediately, boom, we sink. Because we take our eyes off of the Lord. We start to let emotions drive us. We start to make decisions uh, outside of God's will. And we find ourselves sinking in a, in a storm, in the rough seas, not knowing quite what to do. Thank, thank the Lord that Jesus is there to lift us up. Now, I don't think he really condemned Peter. I don't think he was like, Peter, you of little faith. Oh, get out of the water. I, don't th- I hope he didn't act like that. To me, it's like, Peter, you almost made it. Come on. Man, you have little faith. You know I could have was going to be here. We do this all the time. Jesus was there to lift him up, and he does that for each of us today. Not to condemn us. In Sunday school, we talked about sin and how prevalent it is. On one hand, we know the right thing to do, and we want to do that, but at the same time, sin is there, crouching at the door, ready to... You know, to, to deny us what is good and what is best. From my binge reading of the Old Testament, I'd forgotten just how serious God takes sin. We live in an age of grace, and, and we live in an age where we talk about a God who loves us and forgives us. But it's the same God. His attitudes towards sin has not changed. He hates it. And he... He does not like it when his people engage in sin. Thank you, Lord, for your your grace. Because I need that. I need it. How many times have you failed to wait on the Lord? When you've rushed ahead, you take matters into your own hands when you know you should have waited. Like Saul, maybe you knew the right thing to do, but nobody got time for that. (laughs) You just do your thing and boom, problems. It's not always easy to know when the timing's right. Well, Lord, I'd love to do what you want me to do. I have no clue what it is you want me to do. What am I supposed to do? You know, it's pretty simple to know what God wants from each of us. Look at the word for what he wants. The Bible is always the last place that we go to. Uh, you know, when we have problems, well, let me look in here. I'll do something here. I had a friend who... Uh, He's like, here's how I do Bible study. I just pray to God every day. Lord, whatever it is that you want me to know, please uh, let, let me find it. I'm just going to open up the Bible and put my finger down. And Lord, that's what you, you had, on, had for me today. So he, he would do that. He would sit there, he'd throw the Bible down on the table, and he'd... You enlarge my steps under me, and my feet have not slipped. <laughs> There's no context there. I don't know. And he, he would take that and run with it. Ah, oh, see, God doesn't want me to fail. And, and he'd run off. And... Now, fortunately, the word of God is a little more systematic, I guess, put together, a little more logical sense. And it's not even all that complicated to really know what, what it is that God really wants for us. Let's turn... To the book of Micah, oh boy, now we're really getting getting in there, we're out in the weeds now. 
Micah chapter 6 is towards the end of the Old Testament, if, you've, if you have your Bibles. You've got your uh, device, bring that sucker up there, that's cool. Whatever it is, whatever you like. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And Micah's talking here about what God requires of, of man. What is it that God really wants you to do? What is it that God wants out of us? Micah chapter eight, uh, 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Drum roll, here it comes. But to do justice, to love kindness or mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's it. Boy, the Bible is so big and it's got so much stuff. I could never know really what it is God wants me to do. I've heard people say that all the time. It's very simple. God wants you to do justice, love, kindness, or mercy, and to walk humbly with Him. That's what He's asking. God's desire for us is very simple. People complicate things. We tack on rules and man-made laws that do nothing but ensure frustration, and they kill the joy in following Christ. God wants us to love him with all our hearts and let our obedience stem from a heartfelt desire to be pleasing in his sight. David understood what God wanted when he prayed, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God will not despise that. It's not the stink of the burning animal flesh that placates God. It's, it's the desire, the willingness from people to say, God, we've messed up. I, how can I make this right? Forgive me. That's the sacrifice, that broken spirit of when we stop and say, God, I need you. So many times in our desire to race ahead of God and get things done in our way, in our own time, we violate those very simple instructions. When we turn away from those in need, when you see somebody who has a need and you turn away from that, you're abandoning justice. Justice is simply doing what's right in any given situation. To look at the situation objectively and think, well, what should I do? The Bible calls sin, it's simply doing the thing you know that is wrong. If you do something and you know it's the wrong thing, but you do it anyway, the Bible calls that sin. If you think it's wrong and you've done it, join me, you're a sinner, get in line. The Bible is, is very clear. Act with justice. Do what's right to others and to yourself. It's not difficult. It's things you can teach a kindergartner. Kayla works with young kids. And some of the stories she's told me, them little kids, they fight and bite and hit and cuss and throw a fit. And I'm like, man, I could never teach little kids. I'd be like, line them up and bring the paddle, you know. Get these dudes. But it's not hard to try to tell a little kid and to teach them, look, do the right thing to others. That's what God expects. When you take actions that deny mercy and kindness to others, we're taking matters into our own hands and we're taking that away from God. Like, like Saul, maybe we should stick to what we've been told and do what we know is right. 
I've noticed uh, a lot of hatred towards Christians online and in the public and a lot of cynicism towards Christian people. And then some of that, one, obviously, anytime you're a sinner and somebody calls you out for it, well, you don't like that, so you're going to you know, get angry. But many times there are Christians who forget to show mercy and kindness to sinners. We're all sinners saved by God's grace. If we offer judgment and condemnation and threats, that's no way to treat people. We went to a concert. It was a youth concert. We loaded up the van. This was 20, 25 years ago. And off we went to Columbus. And we were, it was uh, DC Talk and not Karen. Was You were a little kid. You went. and Michael W. Smith, I think, we went. and There was a street preacher out there. And he was preaching to us about how we were all going to hell because we're going to a rock concert. And somebody was trying to explain, look, this is Michael W. Smith. I mean, this is, we're Christians. This is a Christian thing. It's like going to church. No, he was out there. You're going to hell. If you go in there, it's going to be this. We used to have down at Wright State. Maybe Donna could remember. The, the preachers would show up down there at the quad and just lay into the students. You're all a bunch of sinners. You're all going down. You're going down to hell right now, I see. And, and people would be like, oh, of course, the college kids, they loved it. They'd get up there and just, oh, here we go, boys. We're all going to hell. And they'd just make a big deal out of it and just antagonize each other. And it got to be ridiculous, just a big show. God wants us to show mercy and kindness to people, not condemnation, not threats. Sure, we have to learn how to discern good and bad, right and wrong. Leave the judgment to God. When we exalt ourselves and our efforts, our ideas, our judgments, our victories, we're violating a spirit of humbleness before God. Look at all the wonderful things I did. There are many Sundays I'll go home and People are like, man, you did a good job. And I, I take time to remind myself, okay, who you really are. And I try to stay humble before God. All the times I screwed up. All the failings that I've had. All the many mistakes that I've made. And, and how it's only by God's grace that I'm even here. How can you humble yourself? Something we need to do. If you think that you're that indispensable, that we need you more than anything, you're wrong. I've seen it in this church. There was a time I had that attitude. Man, I'm, I'm just the big thing. This is when I was much younger. You can't do worship without me. Man, I got all the new songs. I play the guitars and I do all this stuff. And Well, guess what? God can do things. He doesn't need me. God will raise people up within the church. I really believe that. In a time of need. Oh, there's a need here. Mr. Big Shot here. We don't need you, buddy. One of the worst things, experiences I ever had, I was a freshman football player. I'm running down the hill, and I got to play, I got to play varsity. I'm a freshman. Yeah. And I'm running down the hill, and the coach said, Hey, uh, Tallis, I just want to remind you, we don't need you. 
And I'm like, what? <laughs> Why am I playing varsity? That's what I'm thinking. I didn't say anything. I was dumbfounded. He's like, we don't need you. And later, as a coach, I began to understand. The only reason I was playing varsity was because we were that bad. They didn't have anybody else. I wasn't playing because I was great. I was the, the last 11th body, warm body they could run out there. So much for Mr. Big Shot. Trying to exalt yourself is folly. God expects and wants from us a humbleness, a humbleness before God. Let's focus on walking humbly before him. Last week, I challenged everybody to stand firm. And I challenge you to base that desire on the firm foundation of the word of God. And, and I still, at times, people will say it's too confusing. It's too big. My grandmother, every sermon I bring her up because she made that kind of an impact on me. Even my grandma was like, I don't know. I don't think God really meant for us to read this whole thing. There's a whole bunch of book there. And I'm like, oh, come on, grandma. Of course, grandma couldn't really read, so I don't think, you know. But still, uh, it's not that difficult. I say ridiculous do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. It's that simple. It's that clear. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That's my challenge to you this week as you continue to stand firm in the faith, to stand firm in the things that you believe in. Remember, to do just to other people, to be merciful to others, and to walk humbly with your God. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for this day. I thank you for all of the people who have come here today. And Lord, help us as a church to be a just church, to desire to do what's right, and to be a merciful group of people, not condemning people. But when visitors come and others come, it's like, we love you. We're glad you're here. And help us to remember to walk humbly with you as you exalt certain things and you bring about mighty things within your church. Help us never to take credit for that. Help us to remember that you, God, are the one pulling the strings. You're the one who's seeing your will do its work in this community. Father, we love you today. In the name of Jesus, amen.